You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McLenathan. I hope that you brought your rumpled trench coat and your thousand yard stare this week, Wade, because this week's episode is all about haunted detectives. You know, Kevin, rule number one, you never fall in love with the victim. The only love affair is between me and my hip flask, Wade. (laughs) Listeners, we're going to be looking at the cat and mouse thriller from John Lee Hancock, The Little Things. Stay tuned for that and more of our weekly recommendations on this week's episode, episode 279 of Seeing and Believing. You know him, didn't you? Then you had that one little feeling. But you waved it away. You should have listened to that one little feeling. Just like I'm listening to you now. You can talk to me. I'm all a friend you got. Listeners, we are here with episode 279 of Seeing and Believing. And Kevin, we commented outside of this recording of how we had some we had some really good lines in the introduction that we had to cut about you said being the Denzel Washington of film criticism, which I think is a great, I think it's a great image, and it's something I aspire to be. Maybe not so much the Jared Leto of film criticism. I don't know. We'll leave that up to the audience to figure out. Yeah, well, like like we were saying, uh, being the Denzel Washington of just about anything is pretty high. That's pretty high bar. So yeah. that's kind of what I aspire to every day. Yeah, no, no, it really is. And uh, I'm I'm sorry some of those lines didn't make it in the introduction, but we got them here and we got them out. We got to talk about them. And so we, we should be fine. Listeners, we're going to hop into our review of The Little Things here in just a second. Real quick, we want to point you to our Patreon campaign. If you like what you hear on Seeing and Believing and you want to support us, just hop on over to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast you can join support and uh you get some really i don't know i think some great goodies along the way would you say that kevin yeah i would say that uh there's there's plenty of perks that are listed on the page there's of course you can uh you know get a personalized list recommendation list of movies from wade and me you can if you really want to go all out and pledge high you can even uh, be a, a dictator and have us review a movie of your choice on the show. Yeah, really. If you're if you're going up to the twenty or twenty five dollars a month level, the world mm. is your oyster, and we are happy <laughs> to review whatever movie you want us to review for oh, one one week out of the year. Oh yeah, even I mean, I, I I'm thinking even if it's a really bad film, but it might be it might be a great time to review just a terrible movie. From, mm-hmm. you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago. I would love to do that. So listeners, hop on over to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. This episode begins with our discussion of John Lee Hancock's The Little Things. We're going to jump on in with the film's official synopsis. Deputy Sheriff Joe Deke Deacon, played by Denzel Washington, joins forces with Sergeant Jim Baxter, played by Rami Malik to search for a serial killer who's terrorizing Los Angeles. As they track the culprit, Baxter is unaware that the investigation is dredging up echoes of Deke's past. 
uncovering disturbing secrets that could threaten more than his case. Jared Leto, of course, also stars. We'll, once again, let the the listeners figure out whether he's playing himself or a character method or not. <laughs> Kevin, the little things definitely gives off this I guess the slow burn 90s cop drama vibe. Given this, my question to get us started is this. In your opinion, does The Little Things contain the type of character development and chemistry that anchors films of a similar ilk? I mean, that's an interesting question. And I do think it's interesting that you brought up the uh, kind of the throwback vibe that the little things has in terms of just the way it approaches telling its uh, cops and serial killer uh, story and the way that it focuses on this this duo at the center. It does kind of take us back to a world where not every serial killer had to be this lover of baroquely elaborate crime scenes and you know, the, the detec- detectives didn't have to launch onto long philosophical treatises about nihilism. Uh, it's much more about just kind of a meat and potatoes, uh, two detectives trying to solve the case and bringing us along for the ride. And that's the way the little things feels. I don't know that, uh, as to the second part of your question, that there's really a whole lot of chemistry to speak of, uh, among the, the trio of leads in this film it's not so much that the performances are are bad it just seems like Denzel Washington and Rami Malek and Jared Leto are all kind of seem to be performing on different wavelengths from each other which at least for me led to the impression that the little things was kind of a little diffuse unfocused I had a hard time really connecting with it and really feeling it in the way that I think John Lee Hancock wanted me to feel its questions about morality and guilt and the the compromises that people are willing to make in order to to sleep well at night. I think that those those are all interesting themes, but I don't think that on a craft level, Hancock really manages to marshal all of these cinematic elements together to make it really hit home the way he wants it to. Yeah, well, Hancock is kind of a strange choice for this material. Uh, Some of his more popular films uh, are The Blind Side, Saving Mr. Banks, The the Rookie. He does have The Highwaymen from 2019 under his belt. I, I haven't seen that movie, but he, yeah, I agree. He doesn't have this material under his control. From what I understand, this screenplay was was written originally in the 1990s, and Eastwood and Spielberg at separate times circled this story. It is set in the 1990s, which adds a fun payphone beeper element to the story. There are a number of issues that occur, a number of conflicts in the movie that would be almost instantly cleared up if if any of the characters had cell phones. So it was kind of fun to go back to that old world, if you will. A couple things you pointed out. At first, the cast. And I I wanted to talk about that first. That's why I kind of gave that to you in, in my opening question, because I felt like this film 
is the type of movie that really lives or dies based on the cast and the chemistry and the character development they're able to kind of pull out. And Denzel Washington, in my opinion, I think he does well. I think he's I think he's very good. And if you were to take him out and put someone else in, this is instantly one of those direct-to-red-box films, in my opinion. Uh, but he adds this maturity to this presence to the story. I don't like Rami Malek here. I think he lacks charisma and his conversations between uh, you know, his character and Denzel Washington's character, they just feel kind of one-sided. It feels like Denzel Washington is carrying everybody. And then what you said too was right. They just feel like they're all kind of on different wavelengths. And I think Jared Leto, as much as I joke about him, I, I think he's turned in a number of good performances over the years. Uh, this just feels like a little too much. It's just, it's not quite right for the movie. Uh, so in that sense, I think the movie just really has a tough time getting off its feet. Yeah, Leto kind of feels like he's doing an Anthony Hopkins in a Silence of the Lambs kind of performance mm-hmm. here. He's got, yeah. he's just got this, this wide unblinking stare and he kind of has this, this silky menace to him which is i don't know i i found it him fun to watch as far as that goes i think the problem is it just feels discordant with the much more understated vibe that the rest of the movie has he's he's like a silence of the lambs character transported into i don't know (laughs) a a really meat and potatoes police procedural and it just feels it, it it clangs with with the what the other actors are doing and what just the movie is doing in general yeah no and and i think that's absolutely true it just it doesn't it doesn't hit like it should now a number of issues aside and i'll get into some more issues i i still kind of enjoyed watching this movie i got to the end and i was like i'm not really sure what this movie is trying to say i don't think it i don't think it lands any of those themes that it circles but it is kind of interesting to watch there really aren't very many. Are there even any action sequences? I mean, there there's some there's some car chases, but but that's really about it. Uh, and so it it feels quote unquote old school in a way. Uh, you do have this cat and mouse game, and I appreciate that. I like watching Denzel. I like watching this story kind of unfold. And even if it's disappointing at the end. I, I can appreciate the way that it goes about telling this story. And a lot of people said, oh, this is really slow. You know, there's not much that happens. I think I probably appreciated it for those reasons. Well, uh, that's an interesting thing to talk about. You know, is this movie slow? And it definitely is a film that is willing to take its time. And it doesn't have a whole lot of interest in breaking up the slow burn with uh you know an action sequence or a chase scene or something it's that seems it's definitely decided that those are unnecessary for what it's trying to do and it just completely eschews them and i'm actually i kind of welcome that i did like as i watched this film i did like how it was not it felt different from a lot of crime movies that I've seen over the past, I don't know, like decade or so. And that was, in a lot of ways, a breath of fresh air. The problem, maybe, is that 
Hancock just leaves so much on the table in terms of what he could be doing visually and with just atmosphere to make that more deliberate pace feel like it's it has its own kind of payoff. For instance, we don't really there's so much here that's ripe for you know like a, a noirish feel or maybe kind of a, a Michael Mann heat kind of uh, kind of atmosphere with the you know Los Angeles at night and kind of making that uh, kind of its own character in a way and giving you such a strong sense of place that you can believe that there's uh, haunted detectives still kind of trying to get over the case that they could never quite solve. You can believe that there's somebody like Jared Leto prowling the streets in in a in a more stylized film. This though, it just it feels like Hancock really commits so hard to this grounded vibe that that it feels a little bit enervating. So the the deliberate pace can feel slow and the the um the uh, the muted emotional payoff of of the climax and kind of the the note that we end on when we see uh Denzel walking away from that burn barrel where he burns some very uh shall we say plot important items they just it feels a little bit blah and that i think that's because hancock doesn't really hasn't really taken the time to consider how he can invest this story uh even as slow paced as it might be with a lot of mood and atmosphere that would really help it to sell the themes about moral compromise and and guilt and regret that are in the screenplay so do you know what movie I was thinking about while I was watching this? I feel like if anybody can guess it, Kevin, it would probably be you. A mer- oh, man. <laughs> a movie about serial killers uh, or a serial killer that's kind of uh, doesn't always doesn't get solved at the end. It's, it's Zodiac, uh, David Fincher's Zodiac. Mm-hmm. And that film is also deliberately paced. And it's it's one of those films that it it could it could die in in the hands of someone else uh i mean just as fast as it excels in the hands of david fincher and part of that is because of his just his visual eye and these these shots from directly above these uh shots of characters and uh what's happening in the background i mean there's just there's a lot that we could kind of go into with that film and what you're saying is correct the little things lacks that that finesse, that visual finesse, and we don't really get anything. And I, I got done watching the movie, and I was thinking to myself, I don't like. I can't point out one specific shot. Like if somebody said, "Hey, what's one really great shot in the movie?" I don't think I could, I could point to anything because there's nothing really that memorable here. It just kind of gets the job done, and it doesn't. It doesn't further some of the thematic ideas. And maybe we can get into that now. It's fascinating because this movie speaks about religion um, a fairly good deal, but it doesn't really do anything with it. So there, there is a shot of a cross up on a hill that Denzel Washington, he 
he sees a couple times in the movie, uh, and it comes at a pivotal time. Um, uh, Rami Malek, his character at one point asks him if he believes in God. There are images, uh, religious images throughout the film. I just don't really, I don't really know what to say about all of that, except that it, Hancock is trying to say, I guess pose the question, is there some sort of deep morality in our world? That That's really kind of all I got from it. And so one of the questions I wanted, I had for you, Kevin, is, is there anything more? Am I missing something? Or is it just as underdeveloped as I, as I think? There, it, I, I come back to the word diffuse, I guess, to describe how those moments landed for me, because you're right, they do feel a little bit like they're there and there's some potential there. I think especially with that recurring shot of the cross on the hillside that Washington drives by, you know, what when he's on the highway, you know, going back and forth, that's something that recurs a few times through the film. And I can see another film kind of making the point that in a lot of ways, these these detectives are sort of Christ figures in a sense, by, by which I mean that they essentially are the are the people who, you know, go to these crime scenes, they see kind of the worst that humanity has to offer in the the vicious slayings that they have to investigate, the horrible people who they have to arrest and prosecute who committed these awful crimes. And they, they kind of have to take that all on themselves. And at least with with the way that the film leaves uh, Washington and Malick by the end, end of its running time, it seems like the, the, they, they, the film is saying that these men kind of take these, this darkness onto themselves and they kind of bear it and they, they bottle it up inside and they just do their best to, to live with it. At one point, I think Washington even says, you know, if you're lucky, you don't get used to it. You don't become hardened uh, or callous towards the horrible things that you see. And I think that there's some potential there, and it's interesting to think about. That said, I feel like what I just did was lay out a roadmap for this theme that isn't really in the text of the film. It's it's there if you kind of want to see it, but you have to do a lot of extra heavy lifting as a viewer to really tease that out. And it's something that I feel like, again, if Hancock had really leaned harder into stylizing this and maybe doing something like a true detective kind of thing where the entire world kind of uh, takes on this this atmosphere that mirrors the story's themes even if it seems a little bit self-serious or uh unrealistic that the the vibe that it establishes i guess is the thing that is important and this is a film that has precious little vibe to go on and i think it really needs that to sell uh a lot of what it's doing here i mean you think of something like uh fincher's seven where just the mm-hmm. the, the, the yeah. movie just feels like grimy and and disgusting and and perverse and even uh, action sequences like that chase scene where uh, Brad Pitt tries to chase down John Doe in the rainstorm. And the way Fincher chooses to shoot that is just, it's oppressive. And that goes a long way towards 
the uh, when we get to the climax, that we we feel the weight that Pitt's character is carrying in that final dilemma. Yeah, and that's a lot to Fincher's care with establishing a certain atmosphere ahead of time, and I think that's the crucial ingredient that Hancock's film is missing. No, and and it's true. I mean, when when you think about Seven, you think about that just that acid rain and that oppression and we we don't we don't really get that here. We have some sort of grimy production design, but nothing within the compositions that closes us inside of this box. And I I feel like that's really needed because Denzel Washington's character used to work for uh, the sheriff department in LA and he kind of moved out and now he's coming back for this particular assignment and just kind of gets caught up in this world. And I think visually we need to see him get caught up in this world. We need to see him get get trapped, if you will. And that that doesn't happen. It's fascinating that you bring up Seven to another Fincher film that I do like. The, uh, supposedly this story, um, this script was written before Seven came out and it's fascinating to see some of the some of the differences and it makes me wonder how this film would have been received if it had been released in the early 90s uh, because we do have some very some very cliche lines uh, at one point uh, a character looks at another and says you and i you know we're not so we're not so different right <laughs> i i always fell out of my chair with <laughs> yeah. that line like that is a line that you i'm sorry in 2021 you cannot have that line no movie. You, no <laughs> it, it, it would be like having your story begin with it was a dark and stormy night I mean, it's just you can't do that it's just such a cliche and it's played completely straight <laughs> well and then even even to the, the cliche of bringing a suspect in for questioning and and they're scared and you, and you're showing them very disturbing pictures of murder and they're just kind of freaking out like it some of this stuff has just been done so many times that it's lost its flavor if you will uh and so while i appreciate some of the throwback elements because this story has some script problems and because hancock doesn't really have he doesn't really have his hand on that script like he probably should. There are elements that do feel very, very dated. But like I said, it has Denzel Washington in it, and I think he does a good job of kind of carrying this film. And just even even within his body language, carrying the physical weight of these cases. And if there's if there's one thing that I can kind of get out of it, and I mentioned earlier that I, I the movie ended and I was like, I'm not really sure what that's about. There's one thing that I think the film does really strong is it does a good job of just showing the psychological weight and the responsibility of people who are trying to bring about justice and trying to, in their minds, to save lives. And that is a burden. And just the way that Denzel Washington walks in this movie reflects that burden and is enough to elevate what I think is at times weak source material. Washington's performance, I think, is really interesting. I mean, we all are fam- very familiar with the the swaggering Denzel Washington, right? Like, you know, the, the Denzel Washington of Training Day or The Hurricane or Glory, like the, the super charismatic performer who's just 
electrifying to to watch on screen and he, he the, the sort of character who is just kind of master of of his own body master of his surroundings and he is just he's just a force to be reckoned with and seeing washington play almost against that kind of type is really interesting to watch in this film i you you mentioned his posture that's the way he walks that's one thing the, another element is he has kind of he does this thing uh where he smiles he's got this smile that mm, yeah. uh he exhibits throughout the film it's kind of this it's this very almost shy smile it's like he's he's kind of smiling to himself and it's 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 a smile that's almost on the edge of becoming a grimace or a sob it's just it's a fascinating facial expression and i'm not really sure I've ever seen any actor do it. I've certainly never seen uh, Washington kind of put that on. And it really does so much to create the impression of a man who is kind of, he's just been twisted out of shape by uh, his past work as a detective. And he's just carrying that, that twistedness within himself. And he is just soldiering on through because he thinks that's that's kind of what he has to do. That's that's what he tells Rami Malek's character. Is he he tells him, you know, no angels. Uh, you you can't try to be an angel. You just got to do the do the job in front of you, and that's something that you really see come out in his performance. That a man who has seen some some horrible things has maybe done some horrible things, and doesn't really see any way out of his regret. And so he just sort of bears up under it and kind of just tries to uh, literally grin and bear it. I think it's a fascinating performance. Mm -hmm. I really liked uh, what David Ehrlich uh, in his review for IndieWire said, kind of echoing that line from Sunset Boulevard. uh, I am big. It's the pictures that got small. (laughs) He says, you know, Denzel Washington is still big. It's just the screens that got small. And that is about as succinct an encapsulation of his star power and screen presence and how it, even in a very flawed film like this one, it can still be very much worth watching. Yeah, no, and that that's definitely true. And I think that it just kind of brings out for me uh, the performance for Rami Malek to being one of the weaker aspects of the film because we don't, we don't see in him a younger version of Denzel Washington's character. Uh, instead, we see a muted individual. And if we're going back to Seven, just the contrast between Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt—it's—it's it's really, it's really kind of wonderful. Uh, the the cynicism within Morgan Freeman and the optimism and just kind of the gung ho nature of Brad Pitt and what happens to him across that film and we need a little bit more of that we need those characters to mirror each other to reflect each other to influence each other to kind of pull each other in opposite directions and that doesn't happen so much uh, at the end but yeah i mean just right to give accolades to denzel washington because he's he's really great here and he's he's always great to watch and when you see a performance like this you got to remember uh, we won't always have Denzel Washington, so just enjoy his performances while you can. <laughs> I I refuse to countenance that thought, Wade. Denzel Washington will never leave us. Denzel Washington <laughs> must 
remain with us forever. I hope so. <laughs> he is he is such a screen treasure, and I don't know uh, the the world of American cinema almost doesn't deserve him, but I'm glad we have him anyway. Listeners, that's our review of The Little Things. It is currently streaming on HBO Max, so if you have access to that streaming service or access through Amazon Prime or some other platform and have had a chance to see this film, we're very interested in your thoughts. Let us know your opinion of the film by emailing us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. You can, of course, always tweet us at well at cbelievepod. But for now, Wade, let's wrap things up with our weekly recommendations where each of us takes one thing from the world of television or film and recommends it for our listeners' viewing enjoyment. What do you have for us this week? Yes, so if we're talking about the little things highlighting this sort of uh, 1990s police crime drama, I want to recommend a film that I feel like is a is a really good 21st century police film. And that's from uh, David Ayer, It's End of Watch from 2012. This film stars Jake Gyllenhaal and Michael Pena, They're two young police officers, and the film works best when it's just kind of following them along in their daily activities. We get a number of inventive or I guess you could say on-the-ground camera shots where we're just kind of sitting there and watching these characters as they drive around, as they interact with people in, in their community, and the dialogue just feels real as they are cruising LA and chatting it up with each other. Uh, it's it's definitely a very different type of movie than something like Seven or The Little Things, and I appreciate that almost docudrama feel to the film. I like uh, Gyllenhaal a lot. I think he's a great actor. Michael Pena is a great actor who's underutilized often. And to see both of them really work off of each other. Uh, they've got fantastic chemistry here. And then it also shows what it's like to bring some of those burdens home. Uh, the film gets very actiony towards the end, uh, which I think it, it works pretty well. But the the sections of the movie where we're just with the characters are, are certainly some of the best. So yeah, that's from 2012, uh, end of watch. Well, that's one that I I've heard of it. I, and I like you, I really like Jillian Hall and, uh, and Pena as actors, mm-hmm. but I never actually got around to, to watching that one. So thanks for bringing that back on my radar. Yeah, no, it's, it's a pretty good one. And you know, David Ayers, he's had, he's had this film. I thought was good in fury. Uh, we've talked about that. I like that film a lot too. Uh, he's he's put out a string of not so great movies. I'd love to see him get back to some of his better days because he definitely has talent as a filmmaker. If we, you know, even though we've not seen it for for a handful of years. Yeah, well, that's a good recommendation for sure. I was also trying to think of a kind of a police procedural that I would recommend, maybe in in place of watching. The Little Things, certainly 
in addition to watching the little things. And, uh, you know, I, I was thinking about movie, you know, I was thinking about, you know, maybe a Michael Mann film, like Collateral Spring to Mind with the Los Angeles connection. But I had, I think I've already recommended Collateral on an earlier episode, so I moved on from that. And then I settled on Akira Kurosawa's 1963 film High and Low, which I... I'm also pretty sure that I might have recommended on an earlier <laughs> episode, but it's Kurosawa, so I am obviously going to make an exception because you, you know, Kurosawa shows up where he wants. You do not exclude him from a list, especially when he deserves uh, mention in uh, this particular context. High and Low is, of course, the this story about a. Uh, a rich tycoon played by, of course, Toshiro Mufune, whose uh, child is kidnapped, uh, or so he thinks, at the beginning of the film and held for ransom by a kidnapper. Uh, as the film goes on, we, we find out that it is, in fact, somebody else's child who is kidnapped by mistake, and Mufune then has to decide, well, okay, do I still pay the exorbitant ransom for a child who's not even mine. You know, what what is at stake for him in that decision is fascinating to watch. And then the second half of the film is all about, okay, now we want to track down this kidnapper. And I think especially that second half is, it almost feels like a, a different movie in a lot of ways. It's very much a procedural, whereas the first film is almost like this chamber piece, or the first half of the film is almost this chamber piece. The second half is just watching the police going through their work and slowly tightening the net around the kidnapper. And it culminates in this wonderful climactic sequence where the kidnapper is sort of fleeing and he's skulking through the streets of this inner city uh, essentially hellhole. I mean, one way to translate the Japanese title is not high and low, but rather heaven and hell. And Kurosawa masterfully shows that hellish quality of the slums where this kidnapper spends most of his time. It's just, it's haunting in a way that I think the little things wanted to be and didn't quite get there. So if you want to see it done right, definitely check out this great, great film from Kurosawa. Uh, one of my top five picks of, of his films, actually. And he's wow. he's got a few good ones, so that's <laughs> some pretty high praise. Yeah, he's got a couple. He he had a, an all right career, right? Uh, <laughs> some people know who he is. No, I haven't seen the movie, and I've really wanted to. There are so many good Kurosawa films I have not seen. Uh, he's he's made so many wonderful pictures, and so I uh, definitely need to do that. Listeners, make sure to tweet us your thoughts. Once again, that's at cbeliefpod, at cbeliefpod. You can also email us, seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. If you haven't rated and reviewed the show, go ahead and do that. Hop on iTunes, just search Seeing and Believing. You'll see our icon. Click that, give us a star rating and a quick review. That's all for this week's episode. Thank you for listening. It's brought to you by ChristinPopCulture.com. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. My co-host is Kevin McLenathan. And until next week, this is Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. 
please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.